Welcome to Top Class with me, Duncan Crawford. Today, we're talking to a pioneer who wants to revolutionise education. Specifically, my guest today aims to fundamentally change the way teaching and learning takes place in classrooms through the use of online lessons and artificial intelligence. Sal Khan is the founder and CEO of Khan Academy, a non-profit educational platform that began in 2008 and that has produced thousands of video lessons on math, science, reading and many other subjects. It's available in dozens of languages and is used across the globe with more than 160 million users. His organisation is also piloting an AI tutor and teaching assistant called Khan Migo in certain schools in the US, Brazil and Peru. And all of this has been achieved since he ditched his job as a hedge fund analyst in his early 30s. Sal Khan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Duncan. Now, Sal, you are working on technologies that aim to fundamentally change education, the way teachers teach and the way students learn. Do most educators you meet or speak to agree with your approach or not? I, I think they they agree with the the general philosophy. Nothing, nothing I or we preach is fundamentally a new idea. And I think they've actually been the best practices in education for most of human history. If you go back to Alexander the Great, his tutor was Aristotle. He had that as a one on one tutor. Uh, for for most of history, very few people got an education, but the folks who did tend to get things that were fairly personalized. A, a small group of tutors would work with you. If you were having trouble with something, they would slow down a bit, make sure you got it. If you got something quite easily, they would speed up. Uh, they would make sure that it's relevant to the things that you care about. And then at about two, 300 years ago, we introduced the very utopian idea. And it was a very big idea of free mass public education. But in order to do that economically, we had to make some compromises. Uh, we It was the industrial revolution. And so we borrowed industrial age ideas, batch students together, apply set processes to them, move them along a assembly line, essentially at a fixed pace. And one of those compromises when you do all of that is, yeah, you have now 30 students in a room with one teacher. Uh, the teacher is going to essentially deliver some material and some of the students are going to get it and they're going to get an, an A at the end of that on that test. Some of the students are not and are going to fail it or maybe even get a, a C on it. But then the line keeps moving. And somehow expecting that student who didn't understand the more basic material to now understand uh, the more the more advanced one. And uh, that's the system we have. And that's why it's not really a surprise so many students uh, essentially accumulate so many gaps at some point, especially in topics like math, that they, they, they hit a wall. Ed- education schools forever have been preaching that we need to differentiate more for students. We have to do more personalization because in a room of 30 students, there could be kids who are operating at three, four, five different grade levels. What's easy for one uh, student might be hard for another and then vice versa by the next topic. And so educators have always been advocating for lower student to teacher ratios so that they can personalize it more. Uh, I think every teacher one of the hardest things about their job is the spread of student preparedness in a classroom and how do they address some students without boring or losing other students. Uh, so every educator agrees with these things. I think the only place where there there could be some questions is how easy is it to implement it? Uh, because if if I just 
no matter how heroic your efforts, if you're one teacher in a classroom of 30 and you're trying to reach every student where they are, it's, it's pretty much impossible. So you need help. You either need more teaching assistance, you need tutors, or maybe that you could have an intelligent use of technology, maybe to let kids learn, learn at their own pace and leverage the data from that to be able to do more personalization. And that's a big part of what Khan Academy is about, allowing pupils, students to learn at their own pace. So I've seen the app in action. There's lots of games and mini quizzes to encourage kids to learn. Um, explain it to the audience who aren't aware of how it works and what impact have you seen your videos and the app have on student learning? Yeah, I, to understand how it works, I'll, I'll give a little background on how it all started. Back in 2004, I was tutoring some cousins when I was at the hedge fund and words present in my family, free tutoring is going on before I know it, I'm tutoring 10, 15 cousins. And I saw a common pattern that my cousins needed more practice. They had these gaps that they had accumulated uh, through the traditional school system. And so my original background was in software. I said, okay, maybe I could write a little bit of a exercise generator so that they could have practice on some of these skills that they needed practice on. I, as their tutor or their teacher, I wanted to monitor what they were doing. So the app started reporting back to me what they were getting wrong or right. And then I realized once they showed proficiency in one concept, why couldn't it automatically move them up to another concept so that I didn't have to, as the teacher, have to every time figure out a new assignment for, for the students. So that early software, which you know, the very early version of it was back in 2005, um, that has now grown into the Khan Academy platform, but it's still the same general idea. Uh, anyone can go whether inside of or outside of a classroom. Let's say they want to learn algebra. They could go to Khan Academy, go to the algebra course. They could start at the first um, skill, watch a video, do read the article, and then they can try the exercises. It, it samples from a very deep item bank and it's going to measure their proficiency. And it's not just math. It, we also have science and the humanities. So who decides what the curriculum is? Who decides on the topics? And what is it all based yeah, what we've, I mean, the very early days, it was, it was my judgment <laughs> from the very, when, when I was making it for my cousins. Uh, but now we, what we do is we look at every geography. So here in the United States, we have a common core, but then you also have several states that have their own standards. Then you look at in Brazil, they have their own set of national standards. We're working with a bunch of states in India. We're working with you know, places in, in Mexico and Peru. And so at every one of these geographies, we are looking at what are the standards that are usually coming from the state in some way. And then we are building our scope and sequence of courses to match those standards. Understood. So when people are using the app, are you finding it's appealing mainly to kids who want to study or do they appeal to everyone? If you're looking at students who are just coming purely on their own, it does lean towards, I wouldn't say necessarily all academically precocious students, but it is leaning towards academically motivated students. So we get all sorts of letters from someone, some of them even dropped out of high school, but they said, I always wanted to go to college and be an engineer. I went to Khan Academy. I finally learned the math. So that's a student who was struggling in school, but clearly was motivated or gained the motivation and then was able to use Khan Academy to get there. There are a lot of precocious students uh, who are doing it. Uh, there's a lot of uh, 
let's call it homeschooling type families that are also using it or families that are using it to supplement their children's education, making sure that regardless of what happens at school, that the parents can feel confident that the students are getting a very strong foundation in math and science, et cetera. Now, in schools, it's a different group. Uh, about half of our usage is what we call direct-to-learner, and then the other half is what we call teacher-directed usage. And teacher-directed usage is a teacher in a classroom essentially telling their students, use Khan Academy. Here's an assignment for tonight, or I want you to do 60 minutes this week, or I want you to progress 3% in the course. And that is a fully representative sample of, of students you might find in classrooms. And for us as a nonprofit, our mission is free world-class education for anyone anywhere. We realize, yes, it's nice to build it and just put it out there and anyone who wants it can, can use it. But we realize if we really want the impact um, that we think we can have, we have to formally work with school systems and districts and ministries of education to more formally bring it into school systems. So now we, we are partnering with a lot of ministries and school districts to do exactly that. And so that's a very broad group of students. So, so that means that the teacher can see what students have been doing, what they've been focusing on, how many answers they've got right or wrong, for example. Yes. I, you know, that, that we consider table stakes where the, the teacher for sure can use Khan Academy at minimum to view it as an automated homework with better data than they've traditionally gotten. So, hey, here's an assignment do this exercise, the students do it. The next day, the teacher gets reports on who at least did it and who got wrong, what wrong and right. So it's already better data. But we in the product tries to nudge everyone more towards a mastery-based system. So if, let's say, you assign it to 30 of your students and uh, 20 of them were able to get four out of five right, but let's say 10 of them weren't able to, uh, we want to encourage the student to have another go at it because we have a very deep item bank. So they'll be able to try the same skill again with different items. And we try to encourage the teacher to take that mindset as well, that just doing the exercises, that's a start. But for the students who haven't gotten proficient in it, they should keep working on that so that they can kind of finally get there. And in terms of the numbers of people using it, obviously millions of people have used Khan Academy now, but did you see a big spike in people using the app or watching the videos during the COVID-19 pandemic? Simple answer is yes, but it was, it was, there's a little bit more nuance to it. In February of 2020, I remember we got a, a, a letter from a teacher in South Korea saying how he was using uh, Khan Academy to keep his class learning during their nationwide school closures. And at that time, I remember we, I said, wow, we didn't even know they had closed schools in Korea. Can you imagine that? A whole country closing their schools down uh, because, of, because of COVID. And um, we said, you know, well, if this thing spreads to the rest of the world, what if more people are going to lean on us? Uh, and so we started preparing our infrastructure for an increased load. It was about two weeks later that essentially the entire global school system shut down. And we saw our traffic increase by you know, it was about 3x what it typically is. So typically we were seeing about 30 million learning minutes a day. We saw that at the peak get to about 90 million learning minutes a day. I want to talk to you about artificial intelligence because AI is already changing our world, obviously. And you think artificial intelligence could spark the greatest positive transformation education has ever seen. Your organization and others such as Sizzle, Magic School and others have developed AI-powered tutors and tools 
to support students and teachers. And you've developed an AI bot called Carmigo. I suppose before we go any further, explain how this works. Yeah, I, I, and I mean, just as a little bit of background, over a year ago, this summer of 2022, OpenAI reaches out to us and they say, you know, our next generation model is about to be done training. We think this is the one that's going to really surprise folks, but it also might be a little bit jarring. We want to launch with social positive use cases with organizations that folks trust and have the technical capability to leverage this technology. And, and they, thought of, they thought of Khan Academy. And I was skeptical at first when Sam Altman and Greg Brockman, who were the folks that showed it to us. But then when I saw what would eventually be GPT-4, and this was before even ChatGPT came out, and many folks know ChatGPT wasn't even built on GPT-4. It was built on a previous generation model. But when I saw what GPT-4 was capable of, I realized that a lot of our dreams at Khan Academy were more in reach than, than I thought would happen in my lifetime. And the reason why I say that is I started down this journey as a tutor for my cousins. And that one-to-one type of interaction has always been the gold standard in education. And a lot of what we have been doing at Khan Academy back since I was tutoring my cousins has, in a lot of ways, been trying to scale that one-to-one tutoring type of support and we were doing that with things like on-demand video, with things like personalized exercises, and things like giving teachers dashboards and tools. So even if they have 30 students, they can at least start to support a little bit more personalization for those 30 students. When we saw that GPT-4, with a little bit of work, and now a lot of work, to put some guardrails around it, make it safe, and make it stronger at math, and hallucinate less, and all of these issues with it, but we, we saw that it was capable of taking on the persona of of a tutor, a coach, a guidance counselor, a teaching assistant uh, that doesn't cheat, but actually supports you in your learning and does the pedagogically right thing. And that if you were to pair that with all of the content and resources that we already have on Khan Academy, and then you let the AI leverage that to further mentor, ask Socratic questions, uh, we realize that this this, this could be a, a game changer, especially as the AI gets better and better. And so now Conmigo at a very high level, we're saying it's a tutor for every student and it's a teaching assistant for every teacher. It doesn't allow cheating. It's there to support students. And not not only does it not cheat, but we think it can mitigate cheating. Uh, We actually just launched a a mechanism where students can write essays themselves, but the AI will give them feedback. And in the coming year, it's, it's going to report back to the teacher the whole process on how the essay was created. Yeah, it took four hours. We had a little trouble with this. We eventually got there. And if a student cheats, if they go to ChatGPT or or one of these other tools to get an essay written for them and they copy and paste it into Conmigo, Conmigo is going to tell the teacher, hey, I don't know where this essay came from. It's a little shady. You, you, should, you should double click on that. Okay, so there's a lot to break down here. I guess the key to this is that the bots are not there to tell the students the answer. They're there to support the student in solving the problem. Can it do that in every kind of scenario? I, I won't claim that it's perfect, but I'll give a very tangible example that I, I went through a couple of months ago. I, I, I wanted to understand supernovas better. And I don't know if the correct plural is supernova. As you do, as you do. As you do, as you, well, you know, we all know it's an exploding star. A, a star runs out of fuel, the fusion reaction stops and then explodes. And I've made videos about this, I, cosmology videos, but I had a gap in my own understanding. I'm like, it doesn't make sense that when it runs out of fuel that it explodes. Why wouldn't it just collapse? You would expect if the fusion stops, you wouldn't have any of that outward force anymore. And so just gravity would collapse it. So I go on to Conmigo and I'm like, 
why does a supernova collapse? And its first response, if you were to ask that on chat GPT, it would give you kind of a Wikipedia answer. But Conmigo's response to me was, well, do you know what a supernova is? And I'm like, yeah. Uh, and it says, can you explain it? <laughs> I was like, okay. I'm like, well, you know, my understanding is a, a star runs out of fuel. Um, so the fusion reaction stops essentially. But then I write, but then wouldn't, wouldn't the star collapse then? And Conmigo's like, you're right. It, you would think it would collapse. And do you think it would collapse quickly or, or, or slowly? And I was like, well, you know, there's a lot of gravity and a lot of mass there. I think it would accelerate and end up collapsing quite quickly. But that still doesn't explain why it would shoot matter outwards. And then Kadmiko says, well, have you ever seen anything fall quickly without bouncing? And I said, oh, now I get what's... So then I said... So are you telling me that it that the star collapses so fast and it kind of compresses and then it has a a bounce back and then it it ejects some of the matter on the kind of the outer atmosphere of the star so to speak and Conmigo's like yeah that's exactly what happens it's like a if you if you were to drop a ping pong ball on top of a basketball the ping pong ball gets ejected upwards when you have the bounce because a lot of that momentum gets gets transferred to the ping pong ball and I'm like Oh, so that that's an example of something that actually, you know, I challenge anyone listening, if you just do web searches to look for that answer, it's going to be hard to find a good answer to that. But here's something that Socratically worked with me to understand where I was and then did, and made me do the work to think through it myself versus just give me a paragraph answer. It is a fascinating example. And is there not a part of you which is is slightly worried about the power of this thing where it's guiding you? influencing your choices to a certain extent in how you think and have you actually checked since that the answer you came to that it is correct yes i have well it's interesting because you know it's, it's it's for me it was a conceptual gap it filled me in and then and then all of a sudden when you start reading more literature on it like oh it finally makes sense what is what is going on but yes that but to to the broader question there uh you know i i generally find it is quite strong at conceptual explanations these things can hallucinate. And so there is a d digital literacy to make sure that if it's if you ask the mass of a star and it gives you some number, to double check that number. Uh, now, that, that hallucination rate has gone down, et cetera, and we're measuring it. Uh, but generally speaking, one of the guardrails to protect against any type of misleading or inappropriate conversation with the AI is, especially if we're talking about under 18 students, is make it transparent to teachers and parents if the conversation goes into a really a weird place for the student to steer it in, the AI is going to actively notify parents or teachers. And my general sense of generative AI, the people who make the model, first of all, have a very strong incentive to put a lot of guardrails on it because it's not like social media where they have plausible deniability for, for what the content is producing. It's Most people say, hey, OpenAI, this is your model, or Google, this is your model. It can't say weird things. Uh, and then obviously we've put a lot of guardrails on top of that uh, to make it even stronger. Some believe classrooms have become almost AI testing labs with no clear governance. In some parts of the world, some schools have reportedly banned the use of AI tools entirely, to mainly to prevent cheating. Do you, do you see why people have those concerns and should they be concerned? I think the cheating concern is a very legitimate one. Uh, you know, if you if you want to see example of students' true work and they need to do it independently, so they can't do it all inside the classroom, 
and you don't know where it comes from, that's a problem. Now, I will say, and, and I'm working on a book, it's going to be called Brave New Words. I have a whole chapter on cheating. So part of the research was like, okay, well, what was what was going on before chat GPT? And it turns out there was already a lot of cheating going on for thinking for things like writing papers. There are websites, not too hard to find. They look like very reputable companies, but they will outsource your term paper to someone in another country for about $5 a page. This was already going on. And obviously, even before that, people would get someone else to write it, their sibling or reuse an old paper, which is very hard to keep track of. So that was already uh, in the mix. Uh, ChatGPT, in some ways, just makes it more more accessible. But I, I think that's a legitimate fear. But what I'd argue is that the there are very clear solutions to that that not only address the cheating issue, because now an AI, if a student works on the paper, not by the AI, but with the AI, the AI can report on the process. So you can't just copy and paste something from ChatGPT. But even more, the AI can help give faster cycle feedback to a student than they've ever gotten before. One of the problems with writing is it's very expensive to write and get feedback. If you're a teacher having to go through 30 papers and grade them all in a couple of nights, I mean, it's it's an expensive process for a lot of folks and, and AI can accelerate that. I think the other fears, which are legitimate things to think about, which are things like bias or safety. What if a student does weird things with the AI, asks for... Uh, you know, just gets into a, a not productive conversation. Those, I think Conmigo already has very good guardrails for those things uh, where the conversations are transparent to the educators. It can actively notify folks. They're already, it'll stop any conversations. And the thing about these systems is you can audit it. Uh, you know, it's very hard to walk into any random classroom and to see how, let's say, the teacher might respond to a politically charged topic. But you can do that with, with the AI and test it and make sure it's not, it's not going to, you know, kind of an, an extreme place. You, you mentioned earlier about this new development in AI that you're using in regards to essays and essay writing. Um, tell us about that, how that works. Yeah, this is really our, our direct response to showing, hey, look, ChatGPT is not going to ruin writing. In fact, it, 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 the, the, the underlying technology of large language models actually might save writing in, in a lot of ways. So already, literally as we're recording this, we're launching uh, the first version of it, which is a student can write an essay and it's not a traditional chat interface. It actually feels a lot more like for anyone who's used a Google Doc, you're writing a paper and then the AI almost acts as someone who's remotely collaborating with you and it highlights parts of your essay and it starts threads on it. So it'll highlight, say, your thesis statement. And it'll say, okay, is this really a strong thesis statement? Because it's not really backed up with some of your other um, with your other arguments. Or it'll highlight a part of the second paragraph. It's like, you're introducing this character, John, um, but you never talk about John before. Where did John... Whatever it might be. So it acts like you're, you're having a collaborator or a writing coach there, not doing the work for you, but helping you get feedback before you submit, and it takes two weeks before the teacher gets you back a graded paper, and then by that point you're like, oh, there's there's no point in even trying to improve it. So that's what we've 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 already launched, and what we're hoping to have in the coming year is a teacher can assign a paper through Conmigo. Conmigo acts as the writing coach while the student tries to figure out what the thesis statement is, do some outlining, draft the paper. 
Conmigo gives the feedback the way I just talked about, and then also reports back to the teacher, hey, this is where the essays are. This is how long it's taking your students. Here's some common themes that your, your students are getting doing well on or not doing well on. Uh, based on the rubric, here's my first pass assessment on, these, on this paper, uh, but you're the teacher. You get the final say. Uh, so if you have that cycle, which literally is where it's going to happen within a year, um, students are going to feel more supported. They're going to get faster cycle feedback. It's going to be a lot harder to cheat, uh, even cheating schemes that existed well before AI. And then teachers are going to save a lot of time uh, getting at least a first pass of grading. And they'll probably grade uh, more consistently, too. I imagine critics who aren't fans of AI. I mean, it, it sounds incredible what you're describing, but I imagine critics, they don't acknowledge that using apps can make the writing or learning process faster and easier. But they question whether that takes away a sense of accomplishment for the student, particularly if you're talking about something like creative writing. The creative act requires considerable effort and AI effectively is a bit of a shortcut. And is it not to an extent it's, it's taking away the challenge of creative writing. I, I think it is lowering the activation energy a bit, but this isn't the first time that something like that has happened. I, you know, I think even people who had to uh, handwrite their papers with perfect penmanship uh, 100 years ago, if they saw us using uh, a modern word processor, they'd be like, oh, this is a huge shortcut. And wow, this already does a spell check for you, and it even fixes your grammar for you. I mean, this is, this is the current world we already live in. Um, and... I think what this is doing is it will help, I think for a lot of early writers, it'll, it'll help the blank paper problem. Uh, frankly, I think it'll do it even for more advanced writers. I, you know, There's some very experienced writers and journalists who I've talked to who said, yeah, I, I actually do use these tools to get something on paper. And then I keep tweaking it and changing it to the point that it's it's definitely my work. But you could imagine for a student in this context, here it's not even going to create a first draft for you. It's not even going to be that. But for it to say, okay, let's think about a thesis question. You know, what do you believe about this? And for the student to say, I don't know what a thesis is. Well, it's just what you what you what you believe. What's your opinion? What's the argument you're going to make? And then kind of pull it out of the student. I think that's just going to be a net benefit for a lot of students. I don't think it's going to help. I don't think it helps a lot of students to just stare at a. a a blank piece of paper or a figurative blank piece of paper for days and days and just procrastinate their paper. And what I'm describing now is what probably 95% of students go through. They procrastinate their paper because they're afraid of that blank piece of paper. And then the night before, they just try to put something together and it's usually not that cogent. Uh, and then it takes two weeks for them to get the feedback that it's not that cogent, at which point they're off to work on something else and they never really improve it. So I think this has a much better chance of, of um, improving writing versus undermining it somehow in more general terms to discuss ai is there i guess a possibility of damage to the creative process or even to people's ability where if generative ai i'm not talking about your essay app specifically here but if ai can produce and create text music artwork incredible artwork in some cases that it can create it in seconds isn't that an example of where ai could take away skills or weaken skills that humans have developed over many centuries, and it means the next generation of children won't bother to learn them or, or be as skilled. It, it's, it's hard to know for sure. Uh, my current thought on it is, you know, if, if I'm working on a creative project alone versus I'm with other creative people, does that, 
When I'm with other creative people, do I become less creative or more creative? I think most people say you become more creative. Um, you know, you look at the great artists, the great writers, they all hung out with each other at coffee shops and, and whatever else because they would riff off of each other. And what this does is it democratizes that riffing. You don't have to be at that special cafe in Paris anymore. Uh, you are going to have a partner to to collaborate and to bounce ideas off of and get feedback off of. And we have activities where you can write creative things with a, with a with an AI or uh, and I think that's that's going to enhance creativity. Now, there 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 certain there might be certain technical aspects of certain crafts that might become much much easier now. And some of that, but but once again, that has always existed. When the camera came out, people thought that was the death of painting because before the the existence of the camera, painting was a, almost like an engineering like field where yes, there's some element of expression, but there was a lot of technicality of like capturing the light perfectly and making it look as realistic as possible. And but then you had the impressionist movement where people's like, well, let's try to capture what the camera can't capture, and so we're going to have similar things happening now. Where, uh, yeah, you don't you don't have to be super skilled in graphic design or painting or in playing an instrument in order to start now composing music or creating an image or creating a video eventually. But I think the but it'll allow you to tweak and be the editor much much faster and on a much much bigger scale. You know when, when there's this uh, the writer strike in Hollywood. My view is that folks are viewing it the wrong way. If I'm a writer, if I was a screenplay writer, I was like, first of all, this can help me riff and be more productive and more creative. So I could probably write more screenplays. But at the end of the day, what makes me great isn't the fact that I can write an okay screenplay. It's the, the fact that I can write something that's going to make a truly compelling movie. But when I make that truly compelling screenplay, I hand it off to some producer and then that producer is going to spend $100 million to craft this movie and they might completely trash my vision. And if it's a great movie, I'm, I might get something for it, but a lot of other people are going to get the bulk <laughs> of the proceeds. And there's a good chance they might destroy my movie. But here, we're entering a world where if I'm the screenplay writer, I could be in control of my destiny more. I could maybe, what used to be a $100 million movie, I might be able to produce for $100,000 and maybe produce it myself and, and be in control of it. So I, I think it's, it's going to be a democratizing force, just as YouTube and, and, and has been a democratizing force, where you, there's a whole bunch of talent and some of that is you know loosely defined as talent but there's a whole bunch of talent that would have never been d discovered or would never have had the resources by you know if we had the traditional gatekeepers uh, now exist on YouTube I think you're going to see a whole other kind of Cambrian explosion of, of content and, and creativity because of these tools not despite it given everything you've said are there any aspects to teaching or learning that you would keep technology free at least for the moment. Yeah, I think the, I think, you know, it depends what you mean by technology free. I, I, I definitely do not believe that students should be, you know, on a laptop for the bulk of the day or staring at a screen for bulk of the day in any world. Uh, we have a lab school. My kids go to it. If you visit that lab school, even though they do use a lot of technology, probably more than your average school, you're also going to see more human-to-human -human interaction there than an average school. And actually, that's what you would really notice. You're going to notice that if you took a stopwatch out and you measured how often are the kids collaborating with each other, how much time are they get to ask questions and drive the discussion versus sit passively, I think at this school, you'll see a factor of 10 
relative to a typical school and how much person-to-person interaction they have. So I think those types of things are crucial. And the hope for, for myself and for Khan Academy has always been, what can technology do well? And then can that either liberate the humans to do more of the human-to-human, or can it even facilitate um, more of the human-to-human interaction, which uh, I'm a big fan of. Okay, I want to talk to you about the future of AI in broader terms, because one of the fears is that you can't be sure how these technologies will develop in the years to come. The big fear is it can lead to a a kind of super intelligent machine that could go rogue. It's the Terminator scenario, an AI that can update its own code and break free from the control of humans. Is that feasible in your view? I think the idea of a self-improving AI is plausible. I will say that. Do I think that that will lead to a Terminator-type scenario? I think that is unlikely. I think the part that I am afraid of... I All tools throughout human history have just been amplifications of human intent. Um, and so my biggest fear isn't that the AI by itself spontaneously decides it wants to end humanity. Um, My bigger fear is some person who has authoritarian goals, totalitarian goals, criminal goals, or just nihilistic goals um, has hold of the best AI and then is able to augment their intent, their human intent, their negative human intent to then do a cyber attack or a misinformation campaign manipulate elections. Obviously, I think some people listening to this will find that concerning, given the risks involved. Earlier this year, the Center for AI Safety released a statement which said, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. Signatories included Sam Altman from OpenAI, who you know yourself, Bill Gates, and many, many more. Um, Do you agree with that? Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority. I I agree. The reason why I'm pausing is I don't think it's imminent. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there are some actors in this world already trying to create superhumans, trying to, you know, think about winning the Olympic Games or creating super warriors in, in 20 or 30 years. That's doable in theory. Uh, but you know, I wouldn't say that that means let's stop using it, but it means let's just be careful how we're using it and, and, and create mechanisms for recognizing potentially when other people are using it and ways to sanction them or, or, or police that. And so I think the similar thing is with AI, as opposed to just kind of creating this Terminator sci-fi thing and just like, oh, we're scared. What do we do? Let's just shut everything down. I think that's actually just going to play into that future because, once again, the bad actors are not going to shut down what they're going to do. I think the best thing is for us to move together, try to optimize the positive use cases where we see potential negative use cases arising, take care to create guardrails around them. You mentioned sanctions. Is the challenge one of governance? How do you ensure that the technologies remain controlled first by humans, that they don't dominate the humans, but also the bad actors issue. How do you ensure there are those guardrails to use Carnamigo terminology? This is probably the place where I'm most worried because 
this is not something that's going to be very hard for especially a state actor to get their hands on. So for me, it's important for us to have countermeasures that can detect when they're acting, that can take appropriate action. Uh, And no matter what regulation we pass um, for all of the good actors, if Russia or Iran or somebody wanted to, in five years, create a run on banks in the United States, they are going to be able to create fake images, fake videos of people waiting in line outside of their bank, waiting, you know, not being able to get their deposits and fake interviews of people saying, I can't believe I've deposited my bank with this bank there. And and that could literally start a, a run on, on a bank. Now, we could pass all the regulation and laws we want. We're not going to be able to stop that state actor or that criminal organization from being do from doing that. So the right solution is Assuming that happens, what are we going to be able to do to respond? And that might be an AI response. If there's a state actor or criminal organization using AI to monitor their population, uh, you know, do serious surveillance. Well, what if we could also use AI the other way, where we could send them fake information about uh, who's trying to overthrow them or not trying to overthrow them, so then they can't trust any of the information that they're getting. So. It is. It is going to be this arms race. I think again, maybe some people listening to this, you know, tremendously excited about the potential benefits of AI, but you've painted quite a, a terrifying picture there of some of the potential outcomes if this is being used for the wrong means. In terms of governance, to bring it back to education again, how do you spread out this technology through schools to ensure it's fair, that it benefits all, not just those who have computers and a strong internet connection. In effect, how does it help low-income countries? Yeah, you know, I I, I always, um, a lot of times when people see a new solution or a new technology, they look at the frame of, let's look at the proportion of folks using it, and then they use that as a measure of, is it it helping inequality or is it it driving inequality? So for example, let's say there's a new tool, like I'm, I'm making up numbers. Let's say Conmigo next year 80% 80% of the folks using it are upper middle class. These aren't the actual stats. I'm making this up. And let's say 20% are lower middle class or, or poorer. If, if you superficially look at that, you might say, oh, wow, maybe this is driving um, um, inequality uh, for now. But I always say, well, think about, that's not the right frame. The right frame is, what happens when you take it away? If you were to take it away, then that 80% of, say, upper middle class or affluent families are then just going to go to their their, their standby option, which is more support from parents, they're already going to well-funded resource schools, or they're going to hire tutors. It's that 20% of poorer students who are now saying, well, I have nothing now. <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm just, I'm, I, I have nothing. And so I think that's the lens. So if, if we can take these things that have historically been very resource intensive, like one-to-one tutoring or support, and turn it from something that would cost essentially the hourly wage of a fairly educated person in order to get a tutoring in the West, it could easily cost $50 an hour. If we can create, turn that into an issue of you need in an internet connection and some type of a smart device, which is far more accessible than tutoring, then I think we're already making a positive dent in the problem. Okay, great. I know we're low on time. So I, I just want to mention the fact that your organization has been at the forefront of these technological developments over the past decade is one of the reasons why the OECD 
has teamed up with Khan Academy for the upcoming PISA results launch. PISA, of course, assesses the skills of 15-year-olds around the world in maths, reading and science. And the new global results are due to come out soon. And your team has created a version of the PISA test that anyone using Khan Academy can try to see how they perform in comparison to 15-year-olds. Have you tried the test yourself? I didn't take the whole test. I saw a couple of the items. They're good questions. <laughs> yeah. How, did, you, did you get them right? I did. I mean, you know, I wouldn't tell you if I didn't, but I did. I, I didn't get all of them right when I tried them. Um, when you've got quizzes like this, does this help inspire kids to do maths, which is the focus of this round of PISA tests? You know, I, I, I'm not sure if so many kids, most kids in the world are probably not overly indexed on, on, on the PISA, uh, PISA results or the PISA test. But I, I think it is valuable for adults to take a look at it and to understand. Because when, I think historically, you, you'll hear some press release, okay, PISA results, here's how different countries are standing, you know, and there's a little bit of national pride and ego. It's like, oh, we fell down or we're higher now, good or bad, but you still don't know what that means. But if you look at it and you say, wow, most of the kids in my country weren't able to answer this question, I think it gives it a, a very tangible urgency of what the problem is. Because uh, otherwise, if you say how many kids are at what level or relative to some other country, you don't really know how big a problem it really is. But this makes it more transparent. It certainly does. Last question before we go, because we are short of time. Look into your crystal ball for me. What will AI be able to do in 20 years' time, both in education and the wider world? Can you even imagine it? Yeah, it's amazing that 20 years feels like forever now. Even five years, I might be, um, I might be under-predicting. I think within five years, you're going to be able to have a, a very casual conversation with an AI, like you and I are having a conversation right now. You could have a video conference with the AI, like you and I are having a, a, video, a video conference right now, make eye contact, see each other's expressions, uh, read off of those expressions, feed off of them. I, I think that's uh, within the next five years. I think in the next five years, you're going to have uh, AIs with a very strong sense of memory. We're working on this so that a, a, the tutor remembers what the student's interested in, remembers their previous interactions, can report back to parents and teachers. You're going to have AIs that will proactively engage with you. This is something we're working on right now. You know, what a good tutor does doesn't just help you in the moment when you're stuck. They're also calling you up and saying, where are you? Or how come, how come you haven't done your homework? Or what can I do to support you or motivate you? And they'll call your parent up and say, hey, you got to get, you got to get uh, uh, Duncan, you know, working a little bit harder on this. Um, I think all of that's happening in the next five years. I think you go 10 years out, you know, you're going to have, well, I think, I actually think in about 10 years, virtual reality is going to start entering the mix in a very serious way. And then you combine that with AI, it really will feel like the holodeck on Star Trek. You're going to feel like the magic school bus where you can take a field trip to ancient Rome. And some of the people in that world are going to be real people. Some of those people are going to be AIs and you're not going to be able to tell. It's just going to feel like a lucid dream in, in, in ancient Rome. And I know this is, both exciting and scary, but I, I, this, this, is, this is going to exist. Yeah, yeah speaking to you, Sal, look, I've enjoyed it, don't get me wrong, but I have a weird sense of emotions mixing up inside me right now. It's a combination of terror and excitement, I think. I, I, I'm also just glad, I think, at relief that you didn't say the word Terminator there in your description of what's going to happen in the next 10 years. So, um, listen, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. 
Good luck with all your projects. Um, have you any secret plans that you want to share simply due to me asking you a, a polite question? I think the... The, the, the exclusives. The exclusives. I mean, the, 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 the not-so-secret secret plan I've been wanting to do is it's great we're creating all this material, videos, AI, supporting, but another big part of the edu global education system is credentialing. And how does someone get credit for what they learn? Already, someone can go on Khan Academy and learn much of what they need to learn for all the way through high school and, and early college, but there's no easy way for them to prove it. In fact, we have examples of a young girl in Afghanistan wanting to come to school in the United States. She's completely self-educated on Khan Academy, but she has no high school diploma. So one of my dreams is above and beyond all this AI stuff we're talking about are ways, and maybe we could do something with the OECD, uh, ways that we could give a, a globally recognized high school diploma or even beyond uh, so that it's portable for anyone anywhere in the world and, and close to free, if not free. Globalizing micro-credentials is a good idea. Thank you so much, Sal, for your insights. It'll be interesting to see if your predictions for the future do indeed come true. I'm not sure if I want all of them to come true, but we'll wait and see. Uh, thanks again to Sal Khan, founder and CEO of Khan Academy. And thanks to anyone downloading this podcast. If you have a spare moment, please do check out some of the other episodes and do join us again for another episode of Top Class soon. All the best. Mm -hmm.